Hello and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 295. So, based off some discussion from last week, we uh, kind of have this idea for this podcast. We're talking about design for everything today. DFE, <laughs> um, which is not a thing. If it is, trademark. Yeah, yeah it's ours. <laughs> if not, no trademark, trademark infringed. <laughs> so, so okay, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the design fours. So, um, what 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 are we talking about when we say design for X? Well, this is design for and pertaining for electronic manufacturing, right? Because this this part can mean lots of different things depending on what industry you're in. It can mean, um, it, I, I, frankly, it can mean whatever you want. Really, that's true. Uh, no, it, no one's holding your feet to the fire in terms of. Uh, design for, and I'm doing air quotes. Yeah, here. design for four. <laughs> Anyways, so there's DFA, design for assembly. Though I've also heard this called design for production as well. Mm-hmm. And but for some people, they separate those two out as different things. Um, then there's design for manufacturing, which is like the common one, DFM. Mm-hmm. You have DFR which is kind of a new one, and it's designed for repair. This is with that all the uh, right-to-repair movement and that kind of stuff. Also, I kind of like design for recycle because making it so it easily comes apart also makes it easier to recycle because you can separate all the components out into all the different materials. Um, another kind of like old standby for the design fours is design for test, DFT, and then there's also design for safety, is there anything else in that list? I mean, probably. Uh, there probably is. Yeah. Um, I, I came up with an idea. Uh, this was for the podcast for um, when we had Pecan Street on. Um, and it was designed for conservation, kind of like low power and reducing resources and that kind of stuff. We never got to that topic. Hopefully in the future we get to D- what's well, well, it's DFC. Um, which is probably will be a more important thing that engineers will have to think about in the future. But we always um, have to think of, of more criteria, right? There's always more stipulations to what you more do. stipulations. Yeah. Um, and then you had an idea that was also called DFR that we were going to talk about last week, but just ran out of time. But yeah. um, this that was designed for revisions. Though we already have a DFR, which is designed for repair. So, what would you call desvi- design for revisions instead? You could do a DFV, design for versions. Yeah, DF Rev. I don't. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. It's. It's not really a. Okay. So, when we say DF, and then you put some letter after it, um, unofficially, that actually means something. Um, and I say unofficially because, like I said, people aren't holding your feet to the fire. It can mean whatever you really want to, but um, depending on what hat you're wearing that day, um, a DF, uh, a design for thing means that you are approaching a set of criteria and you're designing to meet those and then you're checking against that. So it's less of like, 
oh, I'm keeping my my criteria in my in my head of what I'm doing. It's more of an official like say sheet of paper that says here are the thing your your design uh, targets that meet whatever this category is. So if it's designed for assembly, how was your thing assembled, um, and how is the how does the design meet all of those criteria? Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more official, but for the most part, it's it's um, inside the doors of whatever your company is. Exactly. Um, it's 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 basically coming at. So let's say you you have a design. It's I view these as design fours. You're not even at really the initial des- like so these are some things to think about depending on what your product is like the think about when you're first doing your design but these are more like reviews right 100% 100% um, where, you, where you will go through a dfm process to make your design more manufacturable now going through that a couple times you learn some chips and tricks and then you start to incorporate that more on the front end of your design um, same thing with like the big one is like designed for safety where like you need to let's say you're designing uh you know a safety critical device you'll probably start designing that safety critical design stuff at the beginning of your product design life cycle instead of like at the end with a review process but the whole idea is all these dfs are review checks to make sure that you are hitting the criteria that you should be hitting correct for your product well and that's just the thing so so say you're 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 kicking off a brand new product, and uh, the sales team has said, "Hey, the uh, the uh, that's that's one designed for sales." Oh gosh, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you'll never pass ever. Sorry. No, no, it's not that <laughs> designed for sales. The first page of the data sheet has to have all the buzzwords. Oh, that's how well, you pass yeah. DF uh, sales. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's just uh, designed for sales. All it is is writing the first page of your data sheet. That's it. Right? First page of your data sheet. Add the blinking lights. Say, say you're, you're kicking off a new product and you go through the whole set of, um, hey, sales has told us that we need this new gizmo that does all of these things. So you write up the, your, your project documentation that shows here are all my big goals that I'm going to hit. Um, the, all of your DF criteria uh, effectively will be in that document, but they're not made. They're maybe not spelled out every single one of them. So your high level criteria, here's how much we expect this product to cost. Here's the major features that we want this product to do. Here's the lifespan of it. Here's, you know, manufacturing plan, uh, general things. All of those go in your, your project document. That's, that's the big slide deck that you show to the VP and things. All of your DF things are within the engineering team. These are all of the uh, design criteria that are checked against that maybe you know the sales team's not going to look at or the VP's not going to look at, but they're all things that we hold near and dear to our heart as engineers in the engineering team. Um, so I think I think one of the best places to kind of start with all of this is to just identify which DFs apply to you. Uh, you know, are you assembling the product? Great, yeah, then it's probably not a bad idea to have a DFA check, a design for assembly check. Um, are you, uh, uh, do you have testing involved with your product? Great, have a DFT uh, check on there. And in inside of each one of these DF categories, it's, it's a great idea, I think, to create some kind of document 
that is a list of the key design criteria of what what are we going for with this test? What are we going for with assembly? And what are the things that we care about in this? And here are our criteria of, for our design. Yeah, and these can be really simple criteria. Like yeah. for if you're a small OEM, your design for assembly might be reduce tools and make sure it doesn't take longer than X time to build. Right. That could right. be the two criteria. Great. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that's a that's a great example. So just simple, simple criteria that are things that you can ask a question about and ask, hey, does this design actually meet this criteria? Does it meet the criteria? And it's something that could be somewhat measurable. Um, and so you can see if you improved your, your product or not in regards to these processes. Right. So then uh, creating a schedule that is, uh, that is based off of these uh, design for checks is a really great way to kind of plan out your design cycle for the entire product. Say, hey, you know, we have our initial concept phase, and then maybe at that point we have a design for check that is based off of that initial phase. And then once you have prototypes in hand and you're, you've gotten a little bit further, maybe you start asking questions about, oh, should we start doing a DFM and asking about how this is actually built? And then maybe you're further down the line and you know you can actually get it built. Now we start talking about DFT and design for testing and things is this going mm -hmm. to actually meet all of our criteria for testing yeah and not just not even if you can test the device but what you should be testing on that device right. you know sometimes you don't need to test everything sometimes you just need to you know test the final output of the device or you want to do a full product sweep it really depends or you just have to make sure the led turns on right a simple smoke test um but that's part of the dft the, the dft will tell you that like what do we need to know from the test? Uh, mm -hmm. How deep do we need this test to be? And uh, if maybe you even have criteria where you say like, we know that due to the cost of this device, we it can't the test can't be longer than one minute. So what can we accomplish in one minute? And does our hardware and our software support what we need to find out in that one minute? Mm -hmm. So I, I think uh, it's really important to have a sign off and a circle back process with this. Um, so what I mean by that is if, if say you're your a prod project or product manager uh, that's handling all of these DF checks, <clears throat> have a, have a system where you know, or you create a document that's saying, Hey, this is what we're looking for. This is, this is the point of this entire design for check, regardless of what it is, assembly, test, production, repair, whatever it is, you're creating a list of all of the criteria for that. Grab a schedule a whole time with a specific team uh, on your design team and say, Hey, for the next X hours, we're going to be, doing a DFT. We're going to be doing a DFM check on this new product and uh, make it specific focus time. Um, I've in the past, I've taken half a week or, or, or even a few days uh, where it's just like, Hey, don't bother me and this other person. We're doing a DF check on this product. And we spend all day going part by part based on whatever DF check we're doing DFM or do uh, whatever. And, uh, we go one by one, and our main goal and our focus is this DF check. And, and I kind of say that because it's like, 
if if you're if you're just kind of like have this on the side burner, you might not uh, have the right focus to actually uh, really look at that criteria and and see uh, if you're hitting your target goals. Um, but in terms of the whole process of going from nothing to something with your product design, I think it's really helpful to have these scheduled checks in there. So if you can have it set up, if your team is large enough and uh, capable enough to be able to set apart, you know, a full day or two or three to say, hey, we're looking at design for manufacturing today, I say go for it. And um, then the circle back process uh, is something where you say, um, if say we get to design for manufacturing, we go through the product's great, but we found X, Y, Z problems with it. Okay. Have a circle back process where you go and address all of those problems, come back and you have a second mini DFM or maybe even a third or a fourth or a fifth. You keep going until it's done. This isn't a one-time thing. Um, it's a, it's an iterative process that, that goes until you're absolutely complete with it or, even if you have major problems, schedule a whole nother design for manufacturing check uh, that is, you know, two, three days or whatever you need uh, in order to accomplish it. And, and even if you identify something that you probably won't, you, you let's say you identified a problem in DFM, but you're like, well, it kind of has to still be built that way, right? Sometimes as it happens, you should still document that you discovered that problem because what's going to happen is down the road, another engineer is going to take a look at this and be like, well, why is it designed this way? Then they can pull up that note and go, oh, okay, that's why. That's why this wasn't DFM'd out because it has to be this certain way. Um, making sure knowledge doesn't get lost is probably a big part of the DF umbrella as well. Write everything down. And these become the big milestones. So, you know, uh, as, you're, as you're going through your, your product development cycle... And, uh, you know, if you're the project manager and you're having to give uh, status updates to the engineering manager or someone above them, uh, these become those big uh, hallmarks of saying, like, hey, we've passed this. Uh, we've all been we've all approved. We put our signature on it. We've passed design for assembly or, or whatever it is. And, you know, if there's more information needed, you can pull out the, the documentation and the criteria and said, hey, we've checked for this, this and this. We've all approved that it's mm -hmm. it's correct and good to go. And then the nice thing is at the end of the entire design cycle, once you've actually released your product, you can have a folder of all of your DFR or sorry, your DFX checks uh, and, and you have kind of a timeline and an approval checklist effectively of all of the design checks that you've gone through. It's also, like Parker was saying, it's helpful for remembering what's happened or remembering de uh, design decisions that you know, on the surface look odd. Uh, but if you, if you look back at history, you can say like, Oh, right. That's why we did it. But it's also nice to be able to, to look back if there is ever a problem in the future. Um, you know, have, has this been checked for before or has this been uh, reviewed? Well, look at all of your DF checks. And you know, the, the problem with this is there's not like one size fits all or anything. You know, when you, when you go to start a new product, you, it's up to you to kind of design these checks, uh, design all of whatever DFs are necessary for the uh, the product launch. So uh, instead of trying to keep all the information in your head, it's nice. It's a lot nicer to kind of chunk it out into these steps and then build it into the process or build it into the schedule. It just makes things a lot cl more clean and organized. 
Well, not just that, but also the whole point of chunking it out is so that when you focus on, let's just say design for manufacturing, you only focus on the stuff that matters for manufacturing. And that actually brings up this topic I just uh, thought of, which is the difference between design for assembly versus design for manufacturing versus design for production. Because when you look up kind of like a thesaurus, assembly, manufacturing, and production kind of all mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. But in the DF world, they mean maybe not drastically different things, but they give you different focal points of what you should address in your product. Um, So like for DFM, it's basically can you even build this device for the price that you want or the time? Basically, the can you build it for the time frame that you have, your lead time? Um, whereas um, design for production is can you build your device in the volume you want, right? And then assembly is kind of a common – I actually I take the back from the manufacturing for lead time. Assembly is more like the lead time stuff, I guess. Um but making sure that the system level all works. That's how I would explain it. I think it's it's also valid to bring your vendors in um, if they're willing oh, to yeah. listen to oh you know listen to your rant about this stuff for a while. Uh, I, I it's I think it would be totally reasonable to say like hey here's our design files. It's early on in production. Can you give us some DFA on this? Especially if your vendor is going to be the one doing the a part of dfa yes right yeah uh because they might have some really great insight in fact dfm when it comes to a contract manufacturer on the electronics side of things 90 percent of the dfm part is just making sure there's no like goofy hiccups that will just cause things to grind to a halt yeah most of it is is that part that you picked going to fit that footprint on the board that's the majority of DFM. Right. Or, or you know, did uh, did you somehow or somewhere put a 2,000th whole via on a board or, or something oh, yeah, something yeah. that's just going to, like, cause delays in process from something kind of dumb, you know? Yeah. Whereas DFA is, I guess, more pertaining to the – it's funny. It's, it's actually more the manufacturing process side than – the DFM actually is, um, which is like reflow temperatures, making sure all your parts are compliant. Like if you need lead free and you got a, a part that does not, uh, can't survive lead free temperature reflow, that's a DFA problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause then you have to manually basically put that part on by hand. Or let's say that I, I'm just, pulling something random out here let's say that there's some requirement for a part that it must be washed uh dfa might be like okay well now we know that one part must be washed are all the other parts able to be washed so dj from chat says i see dfm as using knowledge of the manufacturer assembly process to make your design cheaper reliable easier to make stuff like minimizing layer count knowing where to place smt versus play through hole, etc that that is part of it yes See, I, I think there's another layer to it. In fact, there's there's a, a more basic layer on top of that, or I guess beneath that. Uh, all, that knowledge that you're talking about, DJ, is the engineer's side of being able to turn knobs and pull levers in order to control cost on a design. Um, and less of 
a uh, pulling those same levers just to make sure that it even functions. Uh, a lot of times with DFM, it's can this board even be made? Yeah. Uh, that's actually you could say, DJ, you created a new DF designed for bean counter. <laughs> so we already have a DFC designed for conservation, D- designed to be inexpensive. Designed <laughs> to be inexpensive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, uh, and that's just the thing. Like, you can create any DF you want, right? Yeah. Like, you can. All this like, is just focusing on a set of criteria. Bingo. Well, above and beyond focusing, it's focusing and then documenting or at least somehow creating history that you did it and that you approved it or mm-hmm. didn't approve it, one way or the other. And so, design for cost, if that is a, a, a high criteria, then absolutely. Yeah, and it would be okay. You in in that terms, you've got okay. My uh, board needs to co- my hardware needs to cost X dollars. So you list out all your bill material. You list out how much your boards are cost, and you go okay. Am I hitting my target? If not, let's go back and reduce our bomb. Maybe we can get away with going to a two layer board or a four layer board, or we can reduce the board size. That's what you do there. Instead of looking at can I you know, is my footprints correct? You're not looking at your footprints are being correct in a design for inexpensive. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, unless for whatever reason your footprints cause a design to be super large versus super small or, you know, but... No, that could be part of it. Not. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, TI Webbench actually has that um, functionality where... So TI Webbench, for people who don't know, is a... a online application that TI has that you basically give it your power supply parameters, like your voltage in, um, and then you give it your voltage out and how much current you want, and it will design using all the flavors of TI chips it has um, a design, a switcher power supply, basically. And it actually does, I really, everything I've built using that TI webbench works. Um, and it'll, it'll give you all the part numbers. Anyways, one of the criteria you can select is uh, is the total um, landing area of all the components that is on uh, that that design requires. So you could re- and also there's cost. You can right. sort by cost. You can sort by um, basically you give it priorities. Yeah, you can give it priorities. And so if you if you needed to reduce size. Um, because of board costs, you could you could certainly do that and pick a different topography for your switcher that you know maybe won't require such a big inductor. So so Casey eight APF in the chat um, mentions um, matching your board house and assembler capabilities in terms of a design check, uh, perhaps designed for manufacturing. And I think yeah, I think that's great. I think that's that's uh, spot on. And in fact. Say you were say you were doing a design for manufacturing check with your engineering team, and 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 let's just pretend you already have a board done or you're most of the way done, and you have some really unique characteristics about this board, uh, you know, small holes or extended capabilities are required or really thin traces or something like that. You could in that design for manufacturing check, you uh, you could ask the question: Do we really need that? If we really need that, is it? Uh, Sure, great. Okay, we've all agreed we really need really laser-drilled holes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then then you can go and match that to your board house or your assembly capabilities and create a list of, hey, here are the people who say they can do this reliably. 
Um, or maybe you come to the conclusion that like, oh, hey, this really super uber amazing IC that does everything under the sun, we don't actually need that IC. Uh, and that was driving the reason for that we need really small laser holes or something like that. Yeah, like you can switch from a, a BGA package um, or LGA over to like a QFN package and then, you know, get rid of having to have uh, laser drills or blind bird vias and that kind of stuff. And that reduces the cost and it opens up your uh, which board houses you can get and which manufacturers are happy with you. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing about looking at um, design for assembly and manufacturing is, you know, it, depending on how small your board has to be, you pick different packages, right? Like you don't, like the cheapest chip components out there are the 06 size parts, like 06, uh, 0603. Excuse me. So those are the typically the cheapest chip components out there for like resistors and capacitors. And so if you don't need to go smaller than that because of layout concerns like 042 or 0201 or 001005, um, don't don't do it because then you just you're just in ne- you're unnecessarily increasing the complexity and cost of your board. Right. Kind of went down that design for cost route a little bit more than the rest on this list. So the one I want to talk about a lot is this one that you came up with last week, design for revision. Um, yeah. Because this is kind of important with the current supply chain issues that the entire world is having right now. Hundred percent. Um, so, so one of the things about, and I kind of came up with this. Just it's sort of anecdotal with with uh, a lot of the stuff I do at work. Design for revision isn't something that you necessarily have in mind when you're creating a new design, because a lot of times the the mentality of hey, I'm creating this new design, like the the mentality it's gonna is, be perfect I'm going to hit the, first the target time. perfect, right, right, and and and. I, I don't know how many times I've heard like goofy phrases that are like, oh, you always have time to get it right the second time or, uh, you know, like, um, I don't know, just just a lot of phrases or, or just mentality of like it is possible to get it right the first time. Of course, it's possible to get it right the first time. It has not been my experience that most people get it right the first time. It's not even my experience that most people get it right the second time. Like, you need revisions. And and I'm talking about prototype revisions. I'm not even talking about revisions after production has begun on this. I'm talking about there's a new thing uh, that you are trying to develop. Uh, it will go through revision processes. That's just inevitable. So when you're designing a a revision, I think it is totally worthwhile to at least have in the back of your mind, this might be revised again. In fact, even if you're designing the last revision for initial production, there is a high likelihood that it will still get revised sometime in the future. So keeping that in mind will actually alter some of the, or can alter some of the design decisions um, that you make, depending on where you are in the design process. So uh, I just wanted to call out a handful of tricks and tips that I've learned throughout the process, uh, where I've made mistakes, not in, um, n- not necessarily on the board itself, or the, the revision itself, 
mistakes I've made in terms of setting things up for being more difficult to find out that I need a new revision. So um, first of all, if if you are de de uh, developing a circuit that you are perhaps a little unsure of, or a circuit that you know you're going to need to test, this one might seem simple, but it's amazing how often we make mistakes on this. Put circuits that you're unsure of in a location on the board that you can actually access. Uh, and what I mean by that is with a with a uh, a probe or a multimeter or your scope somehow. Don't like, put just it next make to it... the big chunky relay. Or 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 like if if your system is an assembly of boards that all come together, try not to put the circuits that you need to test in a place where you have to solder wires into them just to get access to the oh, signals you want. Yeah. Put it on a side of the board that's just easily accessible. Uh, I've made that mistake before, and it's a it's a nightmare when you're doing development on it. Um, pretty simple <laughs> little check, but I've I've certainly overlooked that. Um, so the next thing on on here is zero ohm resistors. Uh, zero ohm resistors uh, are your friend when it comes to making uh, revisions to boards. So don't be afraid to pepper your board with zero ohm resistors or or pads that uh, that you can configure with zero ohm resistors in order to change aspects of the circuitry. I feel like this might be a little bit more, um, apply more to my style of things, just because mm -hmm. I do a lot of circuitry that, even though I'm uh, confident it will function, I'm not confident someone will like it. Uh, my end product, someone has to actually enjoy uh, whereas like, like my criteria is someone needs to be happy with it. Whereas, uh, a lot of other engineers criteria is it has to hit these targets. And as long as it hits these targets, it's done with mine. Um, I, some, like I said, someone needs to be happy with it. So it's really helpful to have extra pads to be able to solder in, uh, resistors or capacitors to change the function of the circuit. So I've learned to put, zero ohm resistors in places just in case I need them because mm -hmm. I can always get rid of that later on. Yeah, and um, zero ohm resistors are really good. Um, you have here as make easy configuration changes. Um, I'm using those on Pinotar, for example, for the, the voltage supply side for my 50 volt safety relay because mm. um, the supply chain is so messed up on everything including like electromechanical devices uh like relays um and for my production runs i can't i can't get a three volt a 3.3 volt coil for everything well i can get if i mix 3.3 volt 5 volt and 12 volt coils i can get my whole production run and all i do all i did was i put zero ohm jumpers on which coil voltage it's going to pull from right Right, and so I basically saved saved my production run by making that simple change. Well, and and think about it: if you didn't have it set up as a configurable item like that, you'd have to have three individual active Board revisions, revisions to be it. Well, and like what I mean, I mean active because you could build any one at any time, right? Yes, uh, and that kind of makes it. Uh, that's just way more to manage. Uh, from the from every aspect, so uh, yeah, like, having it configurable is really nice. I like KC8s from Chats 
uh, suggestion is zero ohm resistors to allow swapping RX and TX when you make a route error in your schematic. Happens all the time. Yeah. Does RX go to RX or does RX go to TX? I don't know. Did someone who designed the, the symbol in your EDA tool? Good point. Yeah, you don't know, right? <laughs> uh, it, you know, I do a lot of circuitry well, you do with comparators and, and analog logic on it. I'll put zero ohm jumpers to be able to reverse analog logic uh, in case I got it wrong. If if something needs to go high as opposed to going low at a certain time, I'll just put zero ohm jumpers so I can flip it around. And then at the end of the day, like I just mark whichever one is properly working and then put that in the final revision. It, that saved my bacon before. Uh, but yeah, RXTX, that's, that's, cause who hasn't put those on backwards, right? Yeah, crickets, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, here, here's the next one. And this is for newcomers to engineering. Um, I, I certainly, it's, this is so simple, but I didn't know it until I saw it for the first time. Um, DNI, which is do not install. What that means is it is perfectly acceptable to write a bill of materials and to call out a part on your board and say, don't put a part there. Uh, in other words, like you can have a resistor or a capacitor and say, just don't put the resistor or capacitor. Leave it unpopulated. Leave no part in that place. Uh, this is the thing about that is make sure you tell your CM that is your intention too. So... If you have a component that doesn't like a, a on your board that doesn't have a part, say C8 DNI or DNP, like make sure your CM knows that because what how will happen is they go and start loading up their their machines and go. There's supposed to be a part there, right? I don't know. The customer didn't say anything about it. It gets confusing, right? It gets confusing. You know, the, the easiest way to, to do that, at least in my experience, is on your bill of materials, if it's, say, an Excel spreadsheet, and just include a column that says DNI question mark, and you just say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And, and that tells the CM really quickly, yes, they intended a part to be there, or no, they did not want a part to be there. Uh, don't, don't let your CM guess on that, because they'll guess wrong some of the time. Yeah, that's actually one of our... Um, data data checks is uh, macfab is so we'll get a placement list and then we'll also get the bill material list and what we do is we take them we take both of them and then match them together make sure every placement has a bill material entry and vice versa and then you have even even a do not install right yeah so so the bill material should have the do not install list but the placement list should have every single placement on the board right regardless if it's a dni or whatever and so you match them up and you will always get some entries that are on the bomb that are don't have placements and some placements that don't have entries on the bomb and then you you have a nice little report to go hey these are your discrepancies in your design so that's actually a design for uh assembly step would be for you to basically do that yourself and figure out do you have any mismatches in your data right so, so um, DNI, great, great example. Basically, any op amp I run, if I'm running, if I'm doing some kind of analog, something or other, I will always include extra pads for the feedback path on that. So, if I have a resistor in the feedback, uh, I will always include an extra set of 0603 or something like that pads 
in case in prototyping, I find I I want to have some capacitance in the feedback path. I have pads for it to just install very simple and I don't have to do something goofy like piggyback a capacitor on top of a mm-hmm. resistor. It just makes uh, development significantly easier. And if I find that I don't need a part on those pads, most of the time I don't remove the pads. I leave them even for production and they're just always DNI. And yep. that it, it it doesn't lead to confusion, it, it and and it makes things helpful in the future. Let's say something changes and we can't get um, whatever op amp we were using previously. We can only get this new flavor of op amp, but we find that that new flavor of op amp oscillates with the particular uh, components, and we didn't intend that, and it needs an extra hundred picofarads. Well, I've got pads for that. You, yeah, you're good yeah. to go. So good to go. Design for revision. You know, and adding extra footprints, um, we I just came up with another DF. Yeah. Designed for certification testing. <laughs> yeah, 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 for Having sure. extra pads on, uh, on especially I.O. lines that are coming off your board to, like, cables and stuff for uh, ferrite bead networks and that kind of stuff. And you could have them where the pads are just there, and then, you know, the traces just dart across the pads. And then if you actually... And you, oh, I am too high at blah, 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 frequency. Go in there, cut the trace, install the part, test it again, make sure you pass. If you pass, then that you just make that layout change for production. Um, that's, I've, I've done that before with ferrite beads for sure. Mm-hmm. That, okay, that's another really great example of uh, great places to play, uh, put zero-ohm resistors. You put mm-hmm. zero-ohm resistors and you can replace those with an inductor or a ferrite bead or something like that, especially if they're in your power rail. Another great example there is if you have zero ohm resistors right at the end of whatever your power supply is, uh, you can depopulate that zero ohm resistors and solder and wires, and now you have the ability to access your load uh, with whatever meter. Um, Whereas previously, you know, if you didn't have that there, good luck. It ain't happening, right? You know, uh, one other thing to keep in mind is. Uh, I know there's a tendency when you're doing a, a revision, it's like, oh, I can make this layout absolutely perfect. And if I use o, o 201 or o 402 components, I can get really tight and all of these parts right up next to the uh, parts. And you, you feel really good about like how perfect your layout is. And then you get the board and you know, and you find out you need to make changes. And it's a giant pain in the ass to desolder components. Keep in mind that if you ever have to desolder components and solder new ones on, it's helpful to think about that while you're laying out the board. Like, oh, is this a, a circuit that I know I'm going to potentially need to make some changes to? Well, can I even get my soldering iron into this circuit? Yeah, so when you're doing your prototypes, you should definitely think about design for prototyping, and DF. Whereas, can you actually modify your board easier, adding extra pads where you can, you know, or test points... Um, that you can end up, you know, like, when you start moving up more into production, well, you can shrink all your parts together, you can remove test points, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, and, and that brings up a good point. If you, um, if, you, if you find out that your prototype needs some modifications and you, you end up making those modifications and then it works, uh, works fine, it's, it, if you find out that your prototype works fine and, and it'll pass every test that you need it to, it may not even be necessary to redo the layout to make it more tight because you already found it works fine, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is just from a 
you know, your prototyping and then your... You don't have to hit your form factor on the first prototype. That's what right. I'm getting at. A hundred percent, yeah. And and simple simple examples of getting your soldering iron into place, like say you have a T-SOP component and next to it you have a big inductor, it's not a great idea to put a really tiny component smashed in between those two because how are you going to get a soldering iron jaws down into that? Like it's Well, just- not just that. But that's also a, a DFM slash DFA is... Uh, during reflow, you're going to create a heat shadow in there. Mm-hmm. And so that, that little uh, SOT 23 might not get reflowed. Or worse, an 0402 capacitor that's in between those. Yes, yes. Yeah. Also, I, you know, I work pretty regularly with components that are pretty sensitive to um, hot air. They'll, they'll withstand a trip through the reflow oven. But if I need to reflow some components on the board with hot air, there's a good chance I'll melt. Uh, some other components that's also worth keeping in mind uh, if you have a component that's really sensitive to hot air well put it on its own little island if possible away from other uh, parts that helps with re- uh, repairability too mm-hmm. there's certain designs i've made where i've made mistakes in that area and if i ever have to reflow something near that other component i know this i just have to replace it as well it's just gonna melt. To and sometimes that happens so um Having multiple footprints is is uh, really helpful, but also having parallel components helps at the same time. So say if, um, in fact, kind of uh, that goes back to what we started this section with with right now is um, if uh, parts are hard to get right now, um, hard to find. So if you know that you can have parallel footprints or parallel components that could both do the job but have different footprints, if your if your design can handle that, uh, put both footprints on there and label one as DNI based off of what you need it. What to you be. can get. In fact, we have an example of like that at work right now where um, we have a product that um, uh, it has two different footprints on it, and uh, we can populate one or another codec that'll both get the job done. They both function basically exactly the same way, but because things are so hard to get right now, we have to pick one and build based off of what's available. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing to uh, that really is helpful, it, you'd be surprised at how often this will save your bacon, is just put test points on your board. And a test point can be as simple as just an exposed pad that's dedicated to a test point uh, or dedicated to being a test point. There, Obviously, you can put your probe down on an end termination of a resistor or a capacitor or whatever, but a lot of times having dedicated test points makes life a whole hell of a lot easier in terms of validating your revision. Uh, and so having dedicated test points, um, honestly, it'll make things go a little bit faster or, or a good bit faster. And it may actually end up uh, working out that um, when it comes to design for test, you keep some of those test points such that you can tell the operator, hey, put probe on test point one or, or whatever. Or you make a like a a, a, um, a fixture that hits those test points. Bingo. A better yeah. nail style tester. I've certainly had some customers supply documents that are like, you know, put your probe on this side of R5 and put this other one oh, on that man. side. of. And I, I don't like that because um, you, you either have to memorize it and then that's something you can forget. Or every single time you go to do that test, you have to have whatever PDF up and, you know, 
shows and all these pictures of like probe here and here and here. And that's not just that though; is that's highly dependent on what solder paste you're using to assemble those boards because those if you're using a washable flux, sure. That should be perfectly fine, but if you're using any flux that's a no clean, yeah. that no clean flux is going to have a residue on that solder joint, and you have to stand. And you're never it. going to have a really good connection um, with a probe. You you will have to scrape it off um, and and hit that probe. Um, funny enough, like because I see this all the time. Because Macrofab, we have for our our prototyping, we have jet printers. Um, it says stencils for our prototype level stuff. And th- that paste, it's a special paste for those jet printers. And it's no clean flux is like a hard caramel shell when you look under it with a scope. It's actually amazing because it doesn't really leave residue except on the joint itself. It's really weird as a, for no clean flux. But it, it leaves it like a caramel shell. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of like poke at it and it'll like flake it'll off. It'll flake, yeah. Um, which would be fine if you probed it afterwards. But if you try to hit the probe on it, like without doing that, it's it, the probe it's is not a reliable hit. connection. Yeah, it's not a reliable connection at all. So. Also, you don't you don't want your operator stabbing at the end terminations of really small components, and you know they'll twist it around and dig it in, and there's oh, a chance and for the, damage. Yeah, micro fracturing, especially ceramics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I would suspect that you could probably damage a, a like a thin film resistor that way too. If you just have an exposed, uh, you know, say one millimeter ring of of enig plated uh, copper, that's really easy to hit with a with a. That I know we're we're going way into this. Like uh, this is almost like designed for it's designed for DFT. Basically, um, make sure on those pads. Uh, you remove your solder paste. Yeah, don't don't put paste on them. Yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> don't put paste on those pads because then you create the same problem. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, but but so kind of back to at the beginning of this when it's saying you know, when I was saying like it's, maybe you have a circuit that you're not hundred percent confident on, and the reason you're putting it on this board is because you're going to test it and find out. Um, don't be afraid if you have the area. Put test points for as many nets as you feel comfortable with. Even test points for all the nets, <laughs> right? And going back to the zero ohm, you can isolate that circuit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can build up. So like you can just get your board and just build that one section and then all the, and then just leave the zero ohms depopulated. And so you could just like feed that, that, that part of the circuit a signal and see if you're getting your expected output before bringing everything else up. I know you like to do that with especially power supplies mm-hmm. on like new designs. Um, I've always been like, let it rip on power supply <laughs> designs. I'm like, I test, I trust TI Webbench. I'm going to power this thing up with a little, little current limit, but I'm going to power it right up. <laughs> well, okay. So, so with the, uh, with switch mode power supplies, I love the ability to vary the load or determine the load. Like, I, so if you have a zero ohm that disconnects your power supply from the entire circuit, you now have access to that. And you can put an active load on it, and you can step your load, and you can see uh, the response of the power supply. Like doing all of those tests, if you don't have the ability to disconnect your power supply um, on uh, on your board, like that, it makes it that much more difficult, or it just makes a guesswork at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, a simple 
you know, three cent zero ohm resistor can be really helpful in that case. Yeah, uh, DJ from chat says uh, solder bridges and solder jumpers are a cool alternative to zero ohm resistors. What I don't fully agree, especially from the manufacturer side, because um, it's really hard to reliably put down. Let's just say it's just two pads with no copper in between them. It's actually really hard to make that automatic in terms of like laying down paste because the paste will want to ball up and pull away from the solder mask that's in between. Um, You can put just a a thin trace that you cut, of course, uh, in between there. But um, the only, it might be a better way, but the only way I can think of like reliably putting out a solder joint is to, or a solder bridge is to manually do it with solder Mm -hmm. and and iron, Um, which might be fine for, for prototyping, but for relying on that for anything in production because now you're adding a manual step to put the solder joints down. It just doesn't seem to really work too well. I don't know what your experience is on that seating. You know, actually, I, I kind of have, have an example of the opposite of, the, of that in a way right now. Uh, I've got a product that is DC coupled in a particular portion of the circuit. But there may be a situation that we want to AC couple it. So what I did was I put down 0805 pads down. And then mm-hmm. I, I put a small little connecting trace that kind of goes around the pads, but I left enough room. Uh, I shorted the pads, but I left enough room to put an exacto blade in there in case I want to cut the trace and then solder a capacitor down. I'm now AC coupled it. Um, mm. I'm pretty, I'm almost a hundred percent certain we want to leave it DC coupled, but I left myself the ability to AC couple easily. Well, that was what I was saying to. is you can have a little trace you can cut. That's basically it. Yeah. It's just relying on solder paste and a stencil, and then that through reflow to actually like bridge. Um, I actually, the funny thing is solder or at least solder paste actually really doesn't want to like create shorts that way. Any like uh, solder uh, resist is a really good name for that material because it solder paste does not really stick to it. Or it's kind of like, um, What's the name? Hydro is it hydroscopic when a a material rejects water. Phobic, hydrophobic. Hydrophobic. You're right. It's hydrophobic. So solder resist is solder phobic. <laughs> also, I I'm talking a little bit out of my butt here, but um, and it, and it in this situation it doesn't matter too much, but solder. <laughs> Not not too much, but it's worth con- it is worth considering in case you are putting high current through this. Solder paste is not the best conductor out there. Copper is way better of a conductor than solder paste, uh, and that's kind of one of the uh, the whole point of solder paste is that you're not relying on gobs and gobs of it to do the job for you. Mm, gotcha. I wonder what the difference between like SAC three hundred five and like SN ninety nine. Because the conductivity would be, I bet you the SN99 is way better conductivity wise. Not sure. No, no. Now you're shaking your head, and I thought you you knew that answer, and you're like, ah, I I thought better of you, Parker. <laughs> you know the answer. <laughs> well, okay, uh, actually, so uh, gosh, what is it? I I think EEV blog has a whole video about. It. I'm pretty sure it's EEV blog. You, uh, have you seen? Um, I saw the video where he he added solder to like a trace that increases capacity by re- reducing its resistance 
and it doesn't um, actually do a great job of it. No, but it does reduce the resistance. It does, but not as much as you would think. Yeah, as much as it's, you would think. It's, uh, like having a thicker, bigger, better designed trace is actually better than just adding solder on top of a trace because yeah. the the conductivity of copper is significantly better than just solder on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's uh, it's worthwhile, even even though like your boss probably would hate it and the bean counters would hate it. It's worthwhile to consider that what you're designing now is m- maybe not going to be your last revision, and there will be something in the future. So it's worth <laughs> considering, like my Im- my design decisions right now um, might impact how much uh how many more revisions i have to do to get this right so set yourself up for the best um uh success with the 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 revision that you're doing and sometimes that involves just adding a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't at first make sense or maybe it it involves adding a whole bunch of extra things like do not install pads or test pads or zero ohm resistors that you might not even end up using but if you ever have to you'll thank yourself the yeah, first time you put it. one of those down and need it. Yep, yep. Yeah. I think that's going to wrap up this podcast. I love it. Even with one topic, we can still bang out 50-something minutes of, yeah. of chat. Um, so next week is, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the Idea Fab contest. Or well, not contest. Podcast. Uh, podcast. Yeah. I guess it kind of is a contest. It's like one We're v- all trying to one-up each other, right? Yeah, it's all about one-upping each other. Um, so we're going to have... Um, uh scott and eric eric uh from they're not the idea fad they're the idea tank idea tank podcast um is that correct i think that's right yes idea tank idea tank podcast um we're gonna have them uh back on the podcast for the third almost it's the third time ever but twice in two years the the, the gap between the first and second one was like two and a half years something like that um, I'm hoping we can do this like an annual thing because it's a lot of fun. Basically, we come up with uh, each of us comes up with an idea, like a million dollar or a billion dollar idea, and we try to. It's like Shark Tank except for stupid people. <laughs> we market it to each other. Yeah, market it to each other. Well, at least so Stephen, like Scott and Eric, actually come up with like legit ideas <laughs> that could be companies, and then we come up we with come stupid, up with stupid ideas. ideas. <laughs> Um, though you came up with, oh, damn, you're a, uh, go away, uh, AI from last year. <laughs> that would, I, I bet you people would pay money for that. I really yeah, do. Yeah. yeah. So what we want to do is, uh, I'm going to come up with the idea. Steven's going to come up with the idea. Scott's going to come up with the idea. And, um, Eric is going to come up with the idea, but we also want our community to come up with some ideas in our Slack channel or on Twitter or in Twitch chat. Cause we're going to live stream it, of course. And um, I want to, at the end of the podcast, is pitch the community ideas to the group and see what we think about it. So I love it. I love the idea. Yeah. So if you haven't uh, heard the previous two podcasts, they were episode number 77 and episode 223. So yeah, there's a big we, gap right there. <laughs> yeah, like there's a lot of episodes in between there. So go back and listen to those other two so you get an idea of what this third uh, episode will be like. 
And uh, then uh, on uh, Tuesday, the 28th, we will get uh, the community's ideas and present them in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, if you have an idea, join up on our Slack channel, um, backfab.com backfab slash, slash Slack. And or dump it in there. Uh, 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time at twitch.tv slash macrofab. That's the live stream. Um because we'll probably like have a running list of people just like posting ideas, and then we'll read from those at the end. Um, that's gonna be a lot of fun. It, I or this is one of my. I always do, like doing collaborative podcasts. Um, not that you're not great, Stephen, um, all the time, <laughs> but it's always time to mix it up. <laughs> Yo, yeah, yeah. It's it's a these ones are these ones are fun. So. Yeah, I've I've already been. Uh, coming up with ideas for scheming for oh scheming real hard i've <laughs> i've got some i've got some concepts i'm working on right now so that was the macfab engineering podcast we're your host parker Dillman and stephen craig later everyone take it easy <laughs>